You violated the law. It's the full preview podcast. USC 298. Hello, everyone. I'm Feño. This is the full preview podcast. This is UFC 298, and this has a huge main event. We have Alexander Volkanovsky, who might just be still pound for pound number one in the sport, and he's fighting a very exciting prospect in Ilya Topuria. And because this is such a great fight, uh, I'm very pleased to announce that I'm joined by my former co-host of this podcast, a guy that all of you love and I'm sure all of you miss a lot. So I'm here with the one and only Dan Albert. How are you, Dan? Uh, I'm good. Happy to be back. I can't really do these that much anymore, but they're a real pleasure to do. And the main event alone, well, we'll get to how special it is, but I was surprised to find this whole card was pretty good, top to bottom, as far as fun value goes. Um, So, yeah, let's just get back into business. A lot of this is pretty fun. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about, so this is going on at the Honda Center at Anaheim, California, and this is maybe the best fight you can make in the sport right now, so we're both very excited. Uh, there's We have 12 fights to talk about here. As per costume, we're going from the very first prelim, working our way up to the main event. Uh, so yeah, just let's just begin. The first fight of the night is a flyweight bout between Andrea Lee and Miranda Maverick. So I'll talk about both girls and then we can just discuss the, the matchup. So first we have Andrea Lee. Uh, I would describe as a lumbering but powerful striker that fights at a constant pace. Lee has a decently high output. She fights behind the jab and kicks and looks to put combinations together when her opponents stand their ground. She does a good job of attacking all three levels and has solid fundamentals of footwork and head movement. Also has a reasonable understanding of rhythm and can counter off slips and whips and that allows her to not become so predictable. Other than that, one of her biggest flaws is the lack of other meaningful feints and her tempo gets kind of predictable when she starts a combination so it's everything on beat. Uh, she's a physically strong athlete, she's a solid wrestler, and has good grappling fundamentals. Takedown defense can get sketchy as she squares her hips during combinations and stands pretty tall, but she works hard and urgently to get back to her feet. And on the other hand, we have Maverick, an athletic and compact athlete, uh, I mean fighter. Maverick keeps active on the feet, closing distance with big strikes and volume, having an affinity for kicks to the body. An MMA native, she shines with her transition work, she's strong in the clinch and also has serviceable takedowns when shooting at the legs. Uh, She's a solid grappler, aided by her physicality, Maverick is heavy from top position and is also able to scramble if put on her back. Her striking can often look a bit aimless as she likes setups to land her big strikes and she relies on volume and aggression to make it work. If she's denied the chance to generate a scramble when Taken down, she can be stalled from top position. Her grappling is solid, but lacks the tools to generate space and get back up against smothering top players. So what's your read on this one, Dan? Um, Okay, so I'm not too sure to read this one. I don't really feel too confident. I think Maverick had a couple of things I liked off her as far as cohesiveness. 
the big thing is, well, her depth on the feet doesn't really shine, and she comes across as kind of ordinary. She does play with her rear side to create kicks or rear hand setups. The intention is to really get into the um, takedown setups where her main strengths are, and that's kind of a given. Um, I would say, yeah, she's more of that smothering kind of effectiveness than a dynamic one as far as her game goes, but she's persistent and she tries to make it work. I think she struggles a little bit with people who are more at range for the most part. And that leaves us with Lee, who um, I think Lee's issue isn't just simply like um, kind of like cohesiveness. Um, I would add that like she attempts certain things that have cohesion. She just doesn't have like real ancillary ways to make them really work. So a good example is like, in her fight with um, Silva, she constantly attempted a teep threat, at, but it didn't exactly work out because she couldn't compete with Silva's speed at dif- distance with her kicks, and her own kicks usually came out uh, rather um, without many setups to them. And so while the fundamental idea of kicking and establishing the threat of the teeps worked, the actual like process... Um, and result with the execution didn't really help her too much. I think um, her being well-rounded and persistent gives her some ideas to work on the feet versus Maverick, um, but I think like some of the athletic disparity here um, and limited setups on the feet will probably lead to Maverick getting her game more often than not. Sure. Um my read, I think, well, this first off, uh, Lee finds herself with her back like against the gate, against the wall here. Uh, she's riding a three-fight losing streak, and but I think it's, despite that, this is a very well matched fight. Uh, Maverick's transitional work, uh, the wrestling, the top position, grappling shops, all will be key for her here, and if she puts. If she puts it all together, she can find success on the feet because, as you said, like uh, Maverick is like the faster athlete. Um, while I think Lee is probably like better put together on the feet. Uh, on the flips, on the flip side, Lee will have a decent edge in length and comfort when it comes to striking. Uh, I think in this one, the clinch will be key. It could provide Maverick some takedown opportunities. Or it might give the bigger Lee a chance to land like dangerous elbows and knees that she likes. Despite the losing streak, I think Lee has like the technique, the size, and scrappiness to keep it on the feet or get back there if she needs to. So I think we're going to split here. I'm picking uh, Lee to win a decision here. Uh, I'll take I'll take Maverick, but yeah, I definitely agree it will be close. I think I worry a little bit about Lee's distance game. And I think um, the athletic disparity is a bit of an issue, but it's definitely a kind of fight where I can see Lee has enough tools to make it dogged enough. Yeah, it is. I, it, it it looks kind of rough because just like Lee is on this three-fight losing streak, and Maverick has been doing better, but I think uh, they are like fairly close in, in a skill overall. I think uh, Lee is like better schooled in some ways but uh as you said like maverick when she she gets like everything going she has like a more cohesive game going on so it's it's very interesting i think if maverick gets stuck in like a single phase 
uh, Lee can take over if Maverick gets the transitions going is her fight to win. Uh, moving on, we go to a welterweight bout. We have Bal Woodburn against Ovan Elliott. Uh, Woodburn, who some of you might know because he took a very short notice fight against Bo Nickel, is a stocky and solid athlete, uh, pretty well-rounded. He put combos together well, but has trouble managing distance and find himself in the clinch a lot. Uh, he's physically strong. Woodburn is... Hit or miss as a wrestler, as he tends to muscle attempts, but he's solid defending takedowns in open space thanks to his strong hips. A quick sprawl, and all of this is augmented by his low center of gravity. He's like a stocky dude for the division, even, even at welterweight still. Uh, he's a solid grappler. Woodburn can find himself on his back during clean exchanges, especially getting countered, going for risky takedowns. Um, but he's a solid grappler, he can generate space and find single legs from bottom position and once on top he has big and powerful ground pound. Uh, the thing with Woodburn is that he's improved against high level opposition. Opposite to him we have Ovan Elliott, a transitional base fighter. Elliott likes to operate at open space, switching stances, mostly behind big kicks to the body and legs, only getting the hands going when he has a good grasp on timing and distance. But he can put competent short combinations together. He likes having real state behind him to back up from any incoming attacks, but he does a good job of circling to avoid the cage. He uses the kicks and stand switches to disguise his takedown entries, and that's probably the most interesting part about his game. And he's a capable wrestler getting clean on the hips at open space or pushing opponents to the fence and chaining his takedown attempts. Top control is not great, but the wrestling allows him to set up uh, the high pace that he likes uh, his volume on the feet can be a bit inconsistent, so the wrestling helps a lot with closing the gaps in those moments. Uh, Elliot is very well conditioned and insanely tough. Uh, he's a good athlete, but he can get predictable on the feet if he doesn't find the takedowns that he wants. And his defense on the feet, I think, is kind of on the shallow side. What's your read? Um, I freely admit finding some footage for Woodburn was a little difficult for this one. So, obviously, I saw that he was fed to Bo Nickel um, and one other matchup where something happened in that fight. But, basically, <laughs> um, it, my whole read on Woodburn, and I apologize if I'm repeating, is for the most part, yeah, he he's kind of strikes me as a grinding kind of wrestler who wants to throw the damn overhand. Um, mostly pressure to the fence for a clinch or big punch, but he has, like, very little comfort at distance in between those phases, and not a whole lot of, um, um, like, extra tools as far as handling someone more experienced, and I think experience is kind of the big reason why I'm favoring Elliot here, because between Elliot's, like, um work with the lead hand probing to set up upstairs and downstairs combos. Owes in punch selection to create clinches into those transitions. I I even in the short fight with Nickel, like Woodburn is ridiculously reactive to everything going on in that fight and just kind of tries to bang it out. So I think against a guy who's likely to just play Monador at distance and probably set them up for those kinds of things. Maybe a bit of a too big a step for him at this point, but at least he has some answers if there's some kind of physicality to it. But yeah, I, I kind of have a hard time not picking Elliot for this fight. 
Yeah, I think uh, it, it is really hard to get a, a read on this one as both lack real experience against high-level opposition. Uh, Elliot games seem to make a lot more sense, but he has struggled with the physicality and power of opponents in the past, especially in his contender series fight. And he had to rely like on cardio and toughness to get the victory. Uh, Woodburn being like well-rounded and powerful and with a decent gas tank, despite being like so sloppy and so shallow. Um, and has experience like going the distance, Woodburn has, even if he's against like, like closer opposition. Um, I think it makes me side a little bit with here. I mean, Woodburn for as flawed as he is, he's like very powerful and, and strong. I think the logical pick is Elliot, but so I agree with you. He should be the favorite for sure. Uh, but just to make it fun, like uh, I think I'm picking Woodburn to win, like a a very ugly decision in this one. So we're split for two fights in a row, and the next one is uh, we stay at welterweight. This is Josh Quinlan against Danny Barlow. On one hand, we had Quinlan, a powerful striker. Uh, he throws most of his strikes with full power. He likes to operate at open space, mostly trying to score uh, uh, with big leg kicks, uh, using some feints upstairs to setting them up. Uh, he looks to for spots to let his like huge punches. He's powerful with the right hand and the left hook. Quinlan is not really a nuanced boxer or a combination puncher, but he throws heavy, quick, and accurate, and he has a good distance trigger to fire his shots. Uh, if he's not given counter opportunities, Quinlan can be vulnerable as both his leg kicks and his big punches lack nuance in the way of setups. He can be vulnerable closing the distance. When put on the back foot, Quinlan mostly relies on distance, uh, static high guard, and his aggressive counters as defense. Uh, Quinlan is a good athlete, uh, the explosive way he closes distance translates reasonably well into takedowns and he can clinch completely as well. Uh, he's decently conditioned and pretty tough, uh, Quinlan's biggest flaws are really the, the lack of depth of his game, both when it comes to offense and defense. And his opponent is Danny Barlow, who I would describe as an athletic and rangy southpaw. Barlow can move on the outside or walk his opponent down. Uh, what's consistent is his constant feinting and hand checking with his lead hand to set up his dangerous left hand that gives him his nickname that I know you love. <laughs> uh, he has some variety from the rear side as he can throw with a stride, loop and a sneaky uppercut and he looks to gain angles on the counter and also angle out of danger when he's leading. Uh, left kicks and a decent, if inconsistent, jab round up his striking on the feet. He also has a penchant for shifting after his left hand and following up the combinations with jabs or hooks from what is now his lead hand, still with the left hand. His defense mostly relies on his control of, of distance, but he can hide behind his shoulders decently well and can grab clinches and put his footwork to good use to not get stalled there. He's agile and has decent footwork, but has shown a sketchy takedown defense in the past. Uh, how it holds up today remains to be seen. So how's, 
what's your read on this one? Yeah, so my, my general read, I'm just going to jump ahead to my conclusion here, is basically I think if Quinlan can find entries for his takedowns, this fight is his. But I think with Barlow's counters and kicking game, there really poses some danger here for him. Um, starting, starting with Barlow, the, a lot of his tricks come from the half steps and the threat of his um, lead hand check hook um, as well. And while he does favor the um, counter left or lead left as kind of his main tool, well, it comes across as him kind of focusing on spamming it more, especially when he's hunting down the other guy. I do think that check hook often kind of backs guys up quite a bit and gives them some pause. So I think if Quinlan kind of gets psyched out by that and put it distance, he might be in some trouble. Having said that, um, I think Quinlan's like striking game is kind of weird. It's mostly behind feints um, for the most part. I definitely think Quinlan struggles when he's dealing with a counterpuncher who can just walk him into anything. Um, there's a lot of blitzing for takedowns, and he does like to use the body lock for tie-ups. Um, I've seen him caught square a lot for those shots and takedowns, though, so it gives me some pause here against a dynamic kind of athletic guy who kind of has a hair trigger for counter-punching. Um, so I'm not, I'm not 100% sure here. Um... Because I think it's kind of going to be a step up in competition for Barlow, but he kind of has tools to give Quinlan a lot of trouble. Yeah, I think, uh, as you said, uh, if Quinlan is ever going to cosplay as a wrestler, this is the matchup, really. Um, because I think Barlow can replicate a lot of what... What's his name, the last Quinlan opponent? Um, Trey Waters. Trey Waters did. Obviously, Danny Barlow, not as long, but being a southpaw and the, the good footwork, uh, I think he will have like a clear footwork advantage here. Uh, Barlow will have. Uh, he will take angles when Quinlan is trying to close the distance. And I think that will be key in denying takedowns because like Quinlan is explosive, he's strong, and he if he gets his, hand his hands on Barlow, he can probably take him down. I think he'll be denied before he gets to that point. So I think I'm I'm siding with Barlow to win a decision here. Yeah, I, I, I would pick Barlow to hurt him pretty bad at least once and make him either. Yeah, at least once. Because uh, as as we both said, like, Quinlan needs a lot of explosion that it's, like, very announced. <laughs> and Barlow is very good at just taking an angle and just, just letting that left hand go. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to introduce the next fight, because it's the funniest okay. fight on the card. <laughs> Alright, so up next at light heavyweight is Ming Yang Zhang versus Brenson Ribeiro, or as I like to call it, the heavy-handed guy I slugfest, kill or be killed fight. Um, this fight is either going to be really fucking funny, or it's going to be really violent. Actually, it might be both. So, it's probably going to be both. Yeah. It's, it's going to be both. So the immediate question, if you're dealing with a light heavyweight or heavyweight, is do they do anything besides throw an overhand? And and with Zhang, it's like, oh, okay, so he kind of cracks pretty hard with a right straight. He, oh, he goes to the body on the fence and seems to make 
some kind of effort at actually cutting the cage off. That's pretty cool. Well, um, he gets backed up pretty easily, though, and he's very, very open on the counters. And that's kind of the extent my notes went with him. His opponent, I had even less, because I couldn't even find that much. But he seems like a hooker who loves to swing wild. That's a great sentence. Evidently, <laughs> that also explains the number of KO losses because he keeps holding his head really, really high, high up on things. So, the way I see this fight is um, I'm pretty sure or I kind of would lean Zhang just because he throws straighter and has more ideas, but uh, who fucking knows? Yeah, it's... Uh... It's hard to tell because uh, and the, the opposition has not been great. I mean, the, the last guy that Zhang fought you know, on on road to UFC was decent. And to be honest, the the guy that Bretson fought on Contender Series that was the favorite in that match, also decent. But both guys won via just being like super violent. <laughs> uh, I think... Uh, Zhang, I think, has a lot of like interesting ideas on the offense uh, of putting combinations together, of attacking different levels, on doubling up on sides. He does a lot of cool stuff there, but when he's attacking, uh, he's not thinking about defending at all. Uh, and also, Zhang uh, seems to have some good schooling about defending takedowns and getting back to his feet, so that's good for him. Uh, Hibero is like awkward and super lanky and and also like all big actions on the feed neither of these guys are very interested in like throwaway shots or small feints everything is big with these guys uh Hibero, yeah he likes to hook a lot but i think one of his best uh combinations is like a super long one too that he has like he should use that one more uh, Hibero is more likely to try to take this one to the ground but as i said Zhang defends pretty well I think, yeah, this fight is destined to be violent. Uh, both guys are not afraid at all to, about exchanging. Neither is a defensive genius, and that's an understatement. Uh, Hibero might have a slight edge in process in open space, but Zhang is cleaner mechanically, for sure. As you said, he throws straighter. The hooks are tighter. And also, Zhang has more uh, like meaningful variety to his offense. If Hibero tries to snatch a takedown here and there, he might have some success, but I expect Zhang to be able to keep it on the feet for the most part. It's really anyone's fight, but I'm siding with the offensive technique of Zhang, and I think he finds the knockout on the second round. Yeah, I, I think Zhang being tighter mechanically and just having more ideas on the feet just makes me little... With fights like these with untested guys, you kind of just have to lean mechanics a bit or just bet more cohesion or rounded ideas. But yeah, it's honestly, this is the fight for all of us who just want to watch kill or be killed fights. If we're being honest. Yeah. I mean, uh, this might be maybe the, like the lower level fight in the card, but I'm completely fine with it because it's probably, it's going to be silly. It's going to be fun to watch. So I'm not going to complain about this one. So, we both have Jang on this one. Yes. And then we move to Bantamweight. We have Rinja Nakamura against newcomer Carlos Berra. 
So Rin Yakamura, an accomplished former international wrestler, a physical force to be reckoned with. Uh, but Nakamura, he also seems to have a pretty good baseline understanding of a lot of MMA's intangibles, as concepts like rhythm, distance management have transitioned fairly smoothly from wrestling to MMA. Uh, Rinja is a salpo that fights out of a wide stance. Uh, he's light on his feet and he's constantly fading with steps, level changes, and with his hands. He possesses big power with his strikes, including a mean left kick and has a natural counterpunching ability. He has some defensive ideas on the feet, not only via distance, but also like angling, getting behind his shoulders. But it all seems to fall apart uh, when people are putting like volume on him. Uh, because he relies a lot on like his counterpunching to scare opponents off. But he has this huge safety blanket afforded to him by his wrestling. On the topic of wrestling, as you would expect from someone with the accolades that he has, Nakamura is tremendous, not only possessing a lightning quick level change with great penetration, uh, Rinja is also a fabulous change wrestler and has adopted his transitions uh, accounting for the cage very well. He's not limited to leg attacks as he can easily climb to the clinch where he also has a wide array of tools. From top position he's very heavy, flows well from position to position looking for spots to land ground pound and submission attempts. The only knock as a grappler is that so far is that he could probably polish the finish on his submission attempts as he can tend to rush them and give opportunities his opponent to scramble. Uh, cardio and Shim seem to be at the very least fine, but he remains untested against top opposition. His opponent is Carlos Vera, a switch stance kickboxer. He likes to move on the outside, feigning mostly with his hips, looking to land kicks on all three levels. He's a Taekwondo black belt. Vera uh, can get away uh, with mostly setting his kick with feints because he has great variety and dexterity, and he's pretty good at pairing attacks with one another. Uh, not much of a puncher, he packs decent power in single shots and he has good timing on his lead check hook from both stances. And he can also use the thread of his kick to set up his hands fairly well. Uh, the movement of his footwork tends to be on the wide side, like something reminiscent of like Barbosa. Uh, so pressurers might be able to get him against the fence, but at least he seems aware of that and his positioning and he constantly looks to circle back to the center of the cage. Uh, he's solid defensively, he will look to angle, hide behind his shoulders, sneak counters when he's under fire, but he can tend to panic when he's like very near the fence, like throwing big strikes that can get him in trouble. Uh, his big reactions are exploitable, especially by takedowns, which is bad news for this matchup. Uh, he does a decent job of denying takedowns on the first layer, but has trouble against grinders and chain attempts with his back against the cage. He's a solid grappler, he can generate scrambles, he has a solid front headlock game. But yeah, I mean, that's been a problem for him. So, I think both are like good and interesting fighters. Obviously, Rinja Nakamura, a lot higher profile. But I think this might be like the like the most mismatched fight in the whole card. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I definitely think Vera can give Nakamura some looks here because, like, he definitely likes to use stutter step feints and then create re redirections, and he likes to use his kicks to often 
and draw a guy forward into like counters and stuff. But yeah, the t the takedown problem is kind of a big deal. And I I mean I'm by no means a grappling expert. It's definitely not my strength. But I trust like my eyes to say that like basically he can give some looks off his back since he's aggressive there. But yeah, against like a smothering top player who knows kind of what he's doing, like Nakamura has kind of shown. That's kind of just the fact that he's going to be put there most likely in the first place is a problem. Um, on the feet, I can see Vera kind of drawing some redirections and some of the counters out of Nakamura. Because um, Nakamura can be cracked on the center line. Uh, but his like a lot of his great ideas are still working. Like the constant hand-finding with the lead hand, kicks to stop the opponent's initiative and stray them forward. Um, and kind of other little ancillary things. Yeah, it's... I think if it stays on the feet, it could get a little interesting, but Vera being so easy to take down kind of makes this hard to pick him at all, really. Yeah, the striking would be interesting, but I doubt... Uh, they, they will strike as long as Nakamura wants to. <laughs> so yeah, I'm picking Nakamura to get a submission on round three. Do you want to... to introduce the next... Okay, I, I'll, I'll introduce this one. We have big boys. It's heavyweight. It's Marcos Rogerio de Lima, Pesado against the Batman, Justin Taffa. Uh, in one hand, we have de Lima, stocky, big and powerful kickboxer. De Lima carries big power in both hands. He favors the 2-3, both on the lead and on the counter. He has vicious leg kicks with decent setups and that helps him out open space and can also change levels to attack the body and head effectively with his kicks. His defense is not great, but he will throw back hard and tight in the pocket, especially with the left hook, and that offers him a safety blanket. The Lima is also a decent wrestler, a wrestler against the cage with body locks and leg attacks, and that's aided by his frame and his strength. The Lima doesn't have great entries in open space, but can use his power on the feet to open options to shoot or push people against the fence. Uh, on top positions, he has solid top control, very heavy, will land consistent ground and pound and can go for submissions as well. Uh, the grappling of, on the bottom has been a weakness throughout his career as he has trouble standing up and he has been submitted numerous times in the past. The Lima's cardio is surprisingly above average for the division and so is his shin. His biggest flaws are his limited defensive options both on the feet and on the ground and a lack of resolve when facing adversity. His opponent is Justin Taffa, a Salpo kickboxer. Taffa is on the stocky side for the division as well, but he can fight decently long thanks to the, the open stance matchup that he often finds himself in. His active lead hand and his long and powerful kicks also allow him to like extend the range. He stands mostly flat-footed, uh, but he's deceptively agile, and he starts sharp out of the gate. That's like the best quality of Taffa's game. Uh, he's very sharp immediately. Uh, he has huge power in both the left hand and the left kick. And uh, he's good at finding head kicks. So he's kind of sneaky with that. And uh, he also has like a decent check right hook uh, on the counter. He makes good reads, but he can become predictable during long fights as he sticks to his like meat and potatoes style. Uh, Cardio seems at least okay. And his grappling has been 
barely tested in his short MMA career. But he seems to have at least a baseline ability to defend takedowns and scramble. And all of this complemented by his like athleticism and strength. What is your read on the big boys? Um, so Delima, my immediate confusion upon seeing an active kicking game by a heavyweight was prevalent immediately. It, not only that, but the kicks are actively used to punish like planted feet or to use as counters or, or to punish resets, uh, specifically favoring the low kick itself. He's interesting in tie-ups in that he seems pretty strong there, but he gets turned pretty easily. Um, he has a very, very high guard um, to shell up um, with no upper body movement as he does. And my immediate thought was seeing that as, oh, does he have a loss to Derek Lewis on his record? Yes, I bet Derek Lewis flying <laughs> need him. I was right. Um, and so then, and um, I don't really, he has a bit of a smothering, albeit not really a dynamic uh, top game. Um, he passed the Orlovsky test of the division that so many heavyweights fail. But I think Del Lima has kind of some issues in the pocket where he kind of panics and will spam hooks to kind of back guys off. Um, Tafa, I don't really have a read on his full process outside of a green. Yeah, he definitely starts strong and, like, creates really good ideas. Um he really, really likes to use his, like, hand fight to set up a powerful check hook, hook or a kick off of that. Um, he does have the tendency to fall out of stance on his blitzes. He doesn't really have an active jab or, like, anything of the sort. And he's pretty open to the open stance body kick. But none, none of those things, like, I think are particular kind of threats in this one. Um, unless he kind of gets into the pocket a lot with Delima, uh, and it becomes more of like a power for power kind of punching fest. But even then, it kind of feels like he has the advantage because like he could stand in front of Carlos Felipe for quite a bit of time, and Felipe is a much better boxer than Delima was. So, and and that fight also with Felipe showed he was pretty sturdy. So I kind of, um, I think the kicks of Delima are a big deal for him, but I think he might struggle a little bit with Tafa's like creativity and like a little more depth on the feet here. So yeah, I feel like Tafa by decision feels like the best bet for me. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, because this will either be like a quick banger or go long and get a bit slower, I think. And... I think it is hard to tell who comes out or top in both situations. I can see like all four scenarios playing. Like the Lima getting an early knockout is not impossible. And also as you picked, like Tafa getting the, the decision victory is also a, po a possibility. Tafa uh, has lost both times he went the distance, but his cardio seems surprisingly fine for a guy that gets early knockouts all the time. And on the flip side, the Lima lost a decision to a southpaw not long ago in Blagoj Ivanov, one of your favorites. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> but to the Lima's credit, he did not look clueless with the open stance matchup in that one. And while Tafa is more dangerous than Blagoj, I would say, uh, he won't be as sturdy defending takedowns if the Lima decides to take it there. Anyone can go down with the power of the other, but Tafa has showed uh, the better shin so far. 
Uh, the Lima has the wrestling and the grappling if it goes long, but I'm still siding with Jaffa. Uh, but unlike you, I'm picking a first round knockout. Yeah. Yeah, Tafa just kind of feels like he has a bit more depth here, but like it's definitely kind of a weird fight to give some pause to, honestly. But
Yep, I agree with that. Uh, one thing to point out about Dern is that uh, she she has she had been showing like a steady improvement under Jason Perillo. First, she got that nice jab that she had, and then uh, on the heel fight, she finally was able like to put like powerful combinations together. Maybe maybe with her shin up in the air, but she was throwing like heat, staying on stance, and that that might sound very basic, but it it goes a long way. And then she left Parillo uh, for the Andrade fight and you could tell immediately some regression on her striking, uh, especially what I call like, a li they introduce a lot of like MMA striking to her style. You can tell that they understand, started like going inside leg kick a lot more, uh, changing stances, you know, like typical MMA bullshit. That's not necessarily bad, but she was like making a style that was well put together before that, and I think it didn't play much in her favor. And and this like more like a distance oriented style, I think um, it's not very good against Lemos. Uh, this fight is like a similar puzzle to the Andrade one, but Lemos obviously with different tools than Andrade, a different frame too. Uh, I think Dern in this one really needs to put the transition work together, as you said, um, because if she starts like shooting tele telegraph takedowns, that won't cut it against Lemos. For all her, for all her uh, flaws as a as a wrestler, uh, she's still like very strong, and in moment to moment she has decent footwork. And if they stayed like completely on the feet, I'm picking Lemos any day. If Darren is capable of finding clinch entries or a path to the hips or legs after stringing like a few hard shots together, uh, the fight is hers to win. But that's a tall order. Uh, Lemos has better distance management than Andrade. Uh, so that's one thing that allowed uh, Darren to get to the clinch so often is that Andrade was there for the taking. Lemos fight uh, uh, at an extended uh, distance. And... And we've seen Dern like get stuck into phases and not being able to adapt to fighters. Um, but also we've seen Lemos get um, get uh, like single-minded and that's where she gets surprised with takedowns, for example, by Michelle Watterson. So yeah, I think this is winnable for Dern uh, because she presents danger everywhere. Like she, Dern she hits, still hits like super hard. Uh, but I gotta side with Lemos because the leg kicks are another thing. Uh, they're like super heavy on that front foot. And yeah, yeah, it's not in position to check. Yep. And Anna Drash was like punishing her hard with, with leg kicks. And Lemos kicks like super hard. So I'm not liking that one. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think people think that Lemos is like super easy to take down just because of Zhang Weili did, but you gotta count that Zhang Weili is one of the, today is one of the be better chain wrestlers of the division and also a physical monster. So yeah, I think Lemos gets the knockout on round two. Yeah, I'm I'm a little torn on this one because um, seeing Dern kind of compete physically with Andrade gave me some pause here, but 
Yeah, it's kind of a fight where it feels like Dern's decision-making is going to cost her or win her this fight. So, I don't 100% trust her. Um, so, I might take Lamos too, but I'm not as sold on it. It's it's be- it's close. Uh, I think the, the thing is that this is a fight that depends a lot on what Dern is going to do, as you know what Lemos is going to do in this fight. So, it's... It's for sure winnable for Dern, but if I make to pick, I'm picking, picking Lemos personally. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a killer be killed fight, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before moving to the main card, I want you guys to remember that the full preview is brought to you by X Marshall, the combat sport brand dedicated to supporting the jiu-jitsu community. Their goal is to create a fun training environment with unique and exciting designs and promote the gym culture we all love. Xmarshall offers a range of products, including rush guard shorts, spats, keys, streetwear, and training equipment. Use or code the fight site, all caps, no spaces, to get a 10% discount on your order now. And for the best deals and discount, sign up to the mailing list and follow their socials at Xmarshall Official. And with that, we're on the main card. And we have even more middleweight, because after two middleweight main events... Everyone wants more middleweight, but actually this fight is very cool. Yeah, this fight's fucking awesome, honestly. Yeah, this one is this like, one is it, great. It might be the second best fight on this card, honestly. It's really good. So we have Fluffy Anthony Hernandez versus Roman Kopilov, or as most people on Twitter call, Jack Chase Hooper. <laughs> and... So, yeah, I mean, uh, we have... On one hand, we have Fluffy, a transition and pace-based fighter. On the feet, he's not very polished, but he has the right idea of being proactive, staying in his opponent's face, push them to the fence with long combinations, putting his hands together meaningfully. And he also feeds his foes a steady diet of hard leg kicks and will use any disruption of his opponent's balance uh, to close the distance. The defense of Fluffy, I would call like above average, uh, not incredibly layered, but he likes to like hide behind his lead shoulder and parry with his rear hand. And he has like very good eyes to roll with shots. It, uh, it's very hard to, to hurt Fluffy at open space despite him being hit like a lot. Uh, but he has had trouble with jabs in the past. Uh, Fluffy also offers a slips and weaves, especially when he's being proactive. And he can use those to change uh, levels into takedown attempts. And, and that's where that's where Fluffy changed. Uh, he might not be great at finishing takedowns with the initial shot, but he will use any attempt to drive opponents to the fence where he's a relentless chain wrestler. Great array of tools, including leg attacks, trips from the clinch, blah, blah, blah. Uh, aggressive with the strikes in the clinch. He's good at finding elbows over the top, piling up damage to the body with knees. The thing with Fluffy is that He's not like a smothering top control guy. He's more a lot more of making you work. He will allow you to work back up, work those mad returns, land a lot of shots uh, during transitions, and he will like rinse and repeat one time and time again until you accept the bottom position, and that's where he's going to finish you. Uh, Fluffy's issues come uh, with him needing to set the pace and he needs the transitional work to really be effective and he can have trouble getting stuck into phases especially because he's not a particularly big or physically imposing middleweight but he's conditioning his toughness 
and Resolve are all elite. And on the flip side, we have Kopilov, uh, which some somewhat of a polar opposite to Fluffy. He's a softball kickboxer that likes to operate at open space behind a stiff jab. Kopilov feints um, and good understanding of rhythm coupled with his considerable power and speed usually allow him to dictate the pace and exchanges of a fight. He has a sharp one-two and a good arsenal of powerful kicks, especially from the left side, he's very dangerous. But he also scores constantly with a lead outside leg kick. He's good at setting kicks with punches and can also punch off kicks. When he gets comfortable, he puts tight, powerful combos together with his hands, attacking both levels with precision and good positioning inside the pocket. And that only makes his potent kicking game more dangerous. Uh, the takedown defense used to be an issue, but there has been noticeable improvements since changing camps to Dagestan a couple of years ago. He fights grips well, digs for underhooks. Uh, the defense of Kobilov mostly relies on distance management, but he's good at parrying and hiding behind his shoulders when he has the initiative. But he has been vulnerable fleeing exchanges. He has been caught a lot backing up in the past with his shin up in the air. Uh, he's explosive, quick, and very tough. Cardio also used to be a weakness, but it has looked improved as of late, but we don't know. What's your read on this one? Yeah, so um, I, I think definitely the pace of this fight's going to be a big deal because for all intents and purposes, that's what Fluffy Hernandez is going to bring in with his fast starts and just the grind as it goes on. Yeah, so the immediate thing that I really, really liked about Hernandez was his use of the lead hand jab into, like, a transitional frame. Because one thing you'll see is, like, like he'll stick the jab out there intentionally even to the body, but he'll keep it out there as a frame to create a tie-up or a barrier even just in case the opponent tries to throw back and it creates an easy tie-up into that clinch game um th there's a very systemic kind of offense to his game too like one tool naturally leads to another like like everything has a reason for what he's doing um basically oh i'm gonna jab to the body to create this oh i'm going to kick you here to move you towards this this um there's a couple of interesting things as well with the hand trapping game he loves doing and on the fence, like um, especially like creating like little like um, wrist controls for elbows, O's and the like. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of cool stuff Fluffy does and on the ground he's just smothering as well. There's a couple of things I would like to see him do that I think would add to his game a lot. Uh, the biggest of all, and this is the case for another fighter later on this card, imagine if he attacked the body a lot more, because um, he does have the tendency to headhunt a lot, even if he's good at it. Um, yeah, he's very, very like a very much that systemic kind of fighter who wants to break you down with his pace and offense. Um, Kopilev is interesting too, because he's very much about the setups, um, awfully awfully about uh, one tool to another in the same way that Hernandez is, just a different directionality. So it's like you'll see him um, constantly focused on the center line where he can create, like, feints to draw responses out, and then, like, he'll create his targets or attacks off of that, such as with the hand fight to the body kick, throwaways to create counters, where he throws pretty hard off to that, even, like, the half-step feints often, like, lower guys into thinking he's going for a level change. 
And then he'll create a high kick that just knocks you the fuck out. Um, so very, very, very dangerous guy. I think he has a bit of a preference for the 2-1 or or even leads with the uh, 2 individually. And some guys aren't used to like people leading with the 2-1 instead of the 1-2. So a lot of things to like with him. Um, so the interesting part for Kopolev, though is his linear retreats, I think, are a bit worrying for this fight. And kind of paradoxically, while he's... The center line is where he wants to be. I have seen him constantly open to counters off of that same center line more times than it gives me comfort for this fight. So, against a guy who is going to look at the linear retreats and openings on the center line... That's some kind of food for Hernandez to really work with here. Um, but I think Kopolev's kicks and feints are going to ask some questions out of Hernandez's pace and pressure that they haven't experienced before. Because I'm really wondering how um, Hernandez can deal with an active kicker who can fend him off. So basically the gist of it then is if Kopol- Kopolev better hurt this guy or establish the pace off of that. Because if he doesn't, I think the pace is really going to wear him down no matter how much better his gas tank has gotten. Yeah, for sure. There are some things that are part of you as a fighter. I think this is a fight that will really test, like, Kovilov's improvements uh, because unless he gets, like, a quick knockout or he gets to control the pace of the fight, as you said, uh, he's getting his takedown defense and the cardio tested, like, hard. Uh, Fluff is not a stranger when it comes to walking through the fire early. He had to do that against another dangerous kickboxer who is similarly sharp to Kopilov out of the gate in Edmund Shevazian. Uh, we do have to consider that Fluffy has lost, has lost his only fight against a southpaw in the UFC, against Marcus Perez. But that was five years ago. But more importantly, um, Fluffy got hurt to the body in that fight. And also in his other, his in his other uh, UFC loss to Kevin Holland, so and you know Kovilov goes insanely hard to the body, so uh, that's very scary. Uh, but what sways the pick for me is uh, Fluffy's ability to push opponents back, as you said, with the jab, putting the one-two and throwing like the stepping three very long. Um, if he went to the body bar, as you said, he would be fantastic. He goes to the body a lot with knees on the ground, and he used knees on the, in the clinch, but he for sure could afford to go to the body more with his boxing against the fence, just because he pushes people so much there. But yeah, I think uh, Kopilov still has some problems backing up, so he might get hurt himself there. Uh, I think Fluffy, the first round will be very dangerous just because of Kopilov's like body attack and being the better striker. But I think he gets a submission on the third round. What about you? What's your pick? Uh, um, yeah, I think I think those linear retreats and open that problem with liking to be in the central line, but being open there kind of leans me towards Fluffy Hernandez here. Yeah. I definitely think there might be a point, though, where, like, Kopolov gets his attention pretty bad. But, yeah, I, I think as long as this lasts, this is going to be pretty intense. Um, until um, I think Fluffy will take over, though. It 
yeah, it's it, it's tough with kind of like that power and like the body opening that you pointed out, but um, yeah, I, I think this will be a good test for both guys where they're at at this point. Yeah, it is a it is a two outcome fight, but a very interesting to see how it develops. It's it's very cool, but maybe not like championship material, but for sure some of the most interesting middleweights. And talking about championship material, we have a Bantamweight bout next. Uh, and it involves a guy that, in the opinion of, of a lot of people, should be fighting for the title. Uh, he's fighting a former champion. So we have Mirab the Village Billy against Henry Cejudo. What are your initial thoughts on this matchup? So I, I think this is a really well-matched fight. But it's also potentially going to be really, really weird. Um, and most of the reasons it's going to be weird is probably Cejudo's fault, but I'll get to that. Um, so, Marab. So, Marab um, Devalishvili is all about his pace. Um, he's he's always about, like, constantly... He's He's the ultimate manifestation of a doer. And what that means is, like, a guy who just does stuff, like, executes stuff. But Marab is literally the guy who would just do the same things over and over again for the same sole intention, for the sake of his pace basically overwhelming you. And the pace he pushes is fucking absurd. Absolutely illogical. Oh, even by high-paced fighter standards. Um, The big thing that he looks for is mainly, like, constantly putting in actions with persistence. So he's definitely not a good striker, but he is enthusiastic about it. And it's what actually makes him harder to read for some guys. Cause he's just willing to commit to stuff so much. Um, and then when he gets into tie ups or chain wrestling, he's constantly enforcing that. He's not, like, super astounding as far as, like, striking into transition for wrestling, but he'll keep doing it over and over again if it, because he's betting that his tank is greater than yours, and chances are he's right. Um, I think the entries are where Marab's game is the most dangerous is definitely um, right there where he starts them because that's where the chain begins. There's there's some unique like jank that his teammate Aljo kind of does that he does too with his striking once he gets comfortable, such as a lead hook into a, ooh, um, a lead hand trap, then fakes it into a level change and then left hooks again, but a lot of it's just more so like the sake of activity putting out um, stuff, so that's that's the thing. It's not really smoke and mirrors. It's just it kind of means with Marab Devalishvili. You basically need to have a guy who controls distance effectively versus him, or you need to hurt him and make him hesitate. Um, And so I think, interestingly, and I'm jumping ahead of myself um, a little bit, the Yawn fight is best demonstrative of that whole game in action, but while I will say that fight is really, really impressive from him, I would also say it kind of flatters him in some way, and I'll explain why, like, in a little bit. So, Cejudo is an interesting matchup for him in that... 
Suhudo is naturally kind of a reactive guy, but he's got one of the weirdest games I've ever seen. Because he's the kind of guy who seems like he wants to play more of this reactive kind of game. But he's a lot better when he's moving forward and just exploding in on guys. Because he's got a lot of decent things going for him. He's a decent cage cutter. He's a decent counter puncher. He's decent at lateral movement. And he's, like, pretty neat as far as, like, understanding, oh, if I t chain this, like, fake teep into a punch or a switch kick to the body, and when I start hand fighting, I can chain stuff off of that, and I'm good. He's obviously a great wrestler, loves the body lock takedowns, even though he's not really a great top player. Um, he otherwise likes to press guys into the fence. It's just, the, the thing with Cejudo is, like, I never really know what he's going to do. Because there are moments where he, like, figures out an idea and just keeps executing and exploiting it over and over again. Like, the right versus Marias or, like, the constant, like, um, um, body lock takedowns on DJ. But then, like, I'll see him suddenly, like, hit this gorgeous body kick on Aljo that's giving Aljo a lot of trouble. And then he just won't do it anymore. Or even when Aljo won't be able to catch it. So, I... I never know what to think for him. But I think this um, this matchup, despite Marab's win, I think this is a much different matchup than you would expect. That it, I don't think it's a one-in-favored like, kind of matchup for Marab, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it, this, this fight's so interesting because it's like very similar like skill sets with way different philosophies like <laughs> as you said like Mirab might be just the ultimate base as a weapon fighter in the sport right now and Cejudo is like when fights begin Cejudo is like out in open space with his weird like karate stance bouncing fainting a lot and depending on what he gets out of those faints um it is decided, he decides if he wants to like pressure or sit back and, and he won't have to make the, that choice in this one because Merab, you know, is going to get on his face. Though I, I would not be surprised if Merab starts a little bit slower on this one. Uh, you said that a fighter to beat Merab needs to either control the distance and hurt or hurt him. And I think Sehudo is equipped like very few others to do both of those things, but maybe I wouldn't be so sure. Um, That's exactly my pause with Sehudo because I never know what he's gonna do. That's that's what makes him so unreliable. <laughs> All the talk. Um, yeah, for sure. And Mirav, to his credit, has been getting more damaging as a fighter as of late. Especially the kicking, he's putting a lot more heat on those kicks. Uh, we saw how he hurt uh, Pierre Yan with calf kicks and with body kicks. He was throwing heat with them. And the other thing with Mirab is that, yeah, people, uh, Yan was like defending every takedown at first, and I'm expecting Sehudo to defend every takedown at first. But he's completely okay with getting his takedown stuff. He just transitions to the clinch and works like annoying, uh, dirty boxing or goes to the knees, gets back to open space. Mirab is, 
especially in three rounds, it's it's tall order, Mirav. Um, I mean, you would think that Mirav is worse for most people during five rounds, but the thing with three rounds is that he can go nuts, you know? <laughs> like, he won't get tired. Sehudo uh, will have some openings, especially because Mirav is not like super rangy for the division. And Mirav also likes this bouncy style, so maybe Sehudo can tank him on, a, on an entry. Uh, but I don't know, man. Um, it is the fact that we don't know if it was Rain Rust, but we saw Sehudo not as active and still getting a bit tired against Aljo, and both things. I don't like against Mirav. Yeah, in a fight. I, yeah, a couple, a couple of other things. I did say I think, um, I, I did say Mirab. I do think the Yawn fight flattered Mirab's game a bit. But let me let me explain how I kind of view that fight. So that is a good performance. Period. However, you also have to consider that Yawn himself actively like will stay in proximity quite a bit, even against a chain wrestler. So in many ways, that's where Marab ended up being very wrong for him. Um, and not every single fighter at Bantamweight is inherently going to be like that. But conversely, though, I would not expect many Bantamweights, Cejudo is one of the few exceptions to this, to be able to fend off that pace with takedowns as much as Jan did. Because that fight is kind of low-key exemplative of Jan having an insane gas tank, even if he did get his ass kicked by the end. Now, does Suhudo kind of have that same gas tank? Who knows? But yet Suhudo does start breathing heavy in pretty fast-paced fights. The thing with Suhudo, though, is he's such an explosive athlete that there are times I have seen Suhudo get mad when things get frustrating and he just explodes and kind of hurts the guy for a second. <laughs> and that... Might be what he needs to happen for him a little bit here. Unfortunately, Marab is very fucking annoying, so that might help. But at the same time, though, I I think what gives Marab an inherent advantage here is that Cejudo's reactiveness is a huge worry for someone who is extremely initiative-based like Marab Devalishvili. Um... I, I will say conversely, though, I think Cejudo may actually be less afraid of the takedowns that he was against Aljo because Marab doesn't have the back take game over threat that Aljo did. But in the long term sense, it's still a problem. So I think Marab is probably rightfully a favorite here, but who knows what this is going to look like. Yeah, it depends a lot on Cejudo. Another thing that I to add to that Jan versus Marab fight is that rewatching it, I feel like Jan treating Marab like he was very dangerous on the ground was the wrong decision. Uh, in a lot of defending takedowns, uh, Jan could have chosen to strike to get a front headlock, but he was like super concerned about completely denying the takedowns, getting back into space. And that wasn't really doing him any favors. Like, I think if, if he were to engage more in the grappling earlier, I think he would, ha he would have been more successful. And I think uh, Sejudo, in that sense, you know he's, he will want to be competitive with Merab in the clinch, in the mat. 
So maybe that plays into his advantage. But I find it hard to trust Cejudo at this age, being semi-retired and all that kind of stuff. So I'm thinking Merab wins a decision here. Yeah, uh, who who knows? It's definitely a fascinating fight, but who who honestly knows? It's not a fight that we would recommend picking. Yeah, I mean, if if some of you guys betters out there, I would say stay away from this one. <laughs> So why don't I introduce the next one? Yeah, I'll introduce it. Uh, so at welterweight, um, prospect the future Ian Machado Gary, or as I formerly knew him as, that guy who was on almost every goddamn pay-per-view Fenyo and I recorded a few years ago, <laughs> versus uh, Jeff Neal. And um, so I think when we first started podcasting, Gary was here a lot with us. And we were kind of both like, this guy shows some promise, but he's probably not UFC ready yet. But he's kind of proved us wrong since because he keeps getting better and better. Um, and despite all that, um, I would say this is definitely going to be his toughest test yet. Because um, it's kind of a step up from Neil Magny in a, many ways. And Gary passed that test with shining colors, but... um. Neil's Neil's kind of a concern um, here because I'll I'll start out by saying so um, Gary's game has kind of revolved around like building a well-rounded game with feints, mix-ups, hand fighting to predict opponents, and then to use frames of types occur. Like he shows like some effective scouting with how he handled Magni and didn't fall for the same fucking trap everyone falls into, which is. Don't clinch with the fucking guy who's lanky. <laughs> if you do, break out or turn him against the fence. Um, unfortunately, Gary did the right things, and I'm so proud of him. Um, the, the thing with Gary is that um, I still think a lot of his things are developing, but nothing is, like, really standing out as, like, outstanding yet. Like, he just seems like a fighter who's really, really well-schooled. Because he fights grips. He understands how to sort of cut their cage off. He's figuring out how to control guys behind his, like, volume and throwaways. Is, um, he's focusing on pivoting. His combinations are kind of enforced by an active kicking game. Aim or with setups in particular his high kick game in particular off of punches is like the big thing he likes to do um but there's like nothing super special about him as far as like how far he'll go in this division yet like no one's really tested his depth yet um and i don't think he's particularly like dynamic as an athlete either so what makes neil real interesting is um Neil really, really likes the pocket, and he's very, very dangerous there. Neil's interesting, though, because Neil is very rear-hand-reliant, but he does it in a particularly interesting way. Um, most guys who lead with the straight kind of use it often as a counter. Neil is putting that uh, left hand uh, of his, his rear hand, out like a straight, but he's often doubling up on it, measuring it as kind of like a jab often, instead of like using a conventional jab. And my read on that is he might be trying to set up a check hook counter off of that, but it also means like 
with his accuracy, he's deceptively really dangerous to step in the pocket with for other welterweights. And he's kind of decent defensively, too, with guarding behind the shoulders. Um, he's very, very um, also strong in tie-ups, too, will actively fight grips. And as Shavkat kind of showed, if a guy is framing or trying to clinch with him or hand fight with him, he will actively punch over those frames and hit you and is surprisingly accurate with them. And he's definitely a fucking hitter, too, like constantly hurting Luke. And even if Luke is under a lot of tear at this point in his career, hurting Luke that bad is kind of a testament to how dangerous Neil is. Yeah, for sure. The thing about Neil, though, that makes Gary kind of a dog in this fight though, is Neil really does not have a great, like, range game. Um, like, he really, really doesn't have much of a kicking game, and he's not exactly great as far as um, handling that distance if the guy is a kicker. Wonder Boy fight is the most infamous case of that, but Shavkot had a lot of success there. So I think this is kind of a tightrope fight for Gary with Neil's dynamism and counters. Um, testing as far as, like, using the kicks and his improving jab to draw those counters out. Because you can kind of tell Gary's a bit of a thinker. Or, like, he's trying to focus on how can I be more successful in this fight. And I think versus someone who kind of likes to wait for his opportunities like Neil does, that's kind of a good thing. But I think Gary's going to be playing with margins that give me some pause. So, I, I don't really know. Yeah, it is. This one is hard to read. Um, because, in one hand, you, you can say that Gary is very coachable and has shown up with the right game plan. Uh, we saw how Gary's execution against Neil Magny was very good because he stayed disciplined and he stayed doing what he knows, what he's good at. Uh, you can contrast that with, like, Mike Malot's performance against Neil Magny, where he used a lot of the right things that people do to beat Neil Magny, but he gave Magny too many chances doing things that he wasn't that good at and fought out of pace. So in that sense, you can tell that Gary has like a different level of composure and adaptability than that some other guys. And we've seen, like, Neil, as you said, against Wonderboy. And Gary may be one of the better equipped guys in the division to not mimic the style, but take a similar approach here. Staying very long, because Gary is very long and he has those long-distance tools. And also, we've seen, like, Neil getting installed in the clinch by Neil Magny. Uh, and Neil is for sure very dangerous in the clinch, especially in open space. But against the cage, um, he's a lot less effective. We saw that against Neil Magny. We saw that against Shavkat. So, so it's interesting if Gary is going to take that approach of all the way in, all the way out. One thing that is concerning is that uh, Gary has been caught doing two things in his career. One is extending combinations with his shin up in the air. Uh, he's been vulnerable to to the left hook in the past. So maybe um, Neil can catch him with a, like a rear left hook in this one. 
And also Gary is sometimes, and he doesn't do the, this as much nowadays, but he used to like close distance with a hop step despite being the, the longer fighter. And, and yeah, I mean, that's dangerous against Neil because he's a, he has such a good trigger to his counters. The kicking here will be interesting. Both guys kick very hard. Uh, Neil, especially with the head kick, is dangerous. But Gary has a head kick of his own in open sense matchups. We saw that against uh, Rodriguez. So it is hard to tell. It's hard to pick. Um, but I'm feeling like Gary will have to manage those margins. We'll probably lose around getting into some sketchy moments. But I think Gary wins a decision here. Yeah, I, I don't feel 100% confident in it, but Gary's improvement, self-awareness, and constant, like, strive to be successful, I think, like, it definitely is a positive thing against Neil, uh, who can kind of be caught in one phase. So, yeah, I, I think this will probably be a competitive decision, but I can see Gary getting through some scares, so... Yeah, I'll take Gary by decision, too. It feels a little risky, but yeah, let's do it. Cool. So with that, we are into the co-main event. We have Robert Whittaker, the karate boxer, Bobby Knuckles, the Reaper against Paulo Costa, ex-Bohashinian, nowadays known as the Eraser, and also that guy that tweets a lot and never fights. So, so this one is interesting because um, Costa did not look great against Luke Rockhold. I think we can agree at that. But Ann Whitaker was looking pretty decent but died against current champion Rico Duplessis. And when it comes to approach, uh, both guys present things that had trouble each other in the past. Uh, in one hand, we have Whitaker's jab. We saw Uriah Hall trouble uh, Costa in the past with the jab. We saw Adesanya controlling Costa with the jab as well. Uh, but we might want to remember that Whitaker has been kickable in the past and Costa kicks very fucking hard and cuts the cage very well with his kicks. How do you think this one plays out? So... I, I I was talking with someone else about this fight. Um, I think Costa's pressure game kind of conduces itself better when he's fighting southpaws because um, he can look to take away their jabs more. But even then, he is a magnet for jabs with his head because Marvin Vittori is landing jabs on him. Uriah Hall is jabbing him up. Adesanya is murdering him with feints and then jabbing at him. So there's kind of no reason for me to not suspect that Whitaker, a guy who is known for his jab, can do it. The problem for um, Whitaker here is um, that I, I think Costa... Um, well, Costa's cage craft can be hit or miss. Like, he is a decent, like... As far as, like, recognizing, okay, I need to cut you off. 
And Whitaker, like, well, he's switched to kind of Matador kind of performances, both in neutral and back foot. He's still not exactly great at not getting backed into the fence. And that's where Costa gets really, really scary. Um, Whitaker might have su- some success clinching or, like, using that to tie it for wrestling. Though Costa Costa doesn't have, like, great takedown defense, but he is really powerful and athletic. I can see that kind of happening. Um, but Costa is very, very weird. Um, because you'll see him... Um, he he is the most quintessential. I do not know a nice way to say this. He is the kind of fighter who strikes me as it's really bad if he's trying to think. Um, that is, Costa. I think kind of feels like sometimes he's in these fights where he forgets he has like one tour, needs to push his pace on a, I and then loses out rounds or moments than he should. Because against Vittori, Vittori is not a powerful hitter and isn't that great at striking. And it took, and well, Vittori is literally this golem creature molded from heaven itself to not die from a nuclear apocalypse. Um, it took Costa kind of a disturbing amount of time to realize, oh, I can kind of just stay in front of this guy and kick the shit out of him into the body. He can't really fight me back too much. And like, Round five, he beat the absolute fucking shit out of Vittori. Um, but for most of that fight, he just kind of forgot he didn't have a left hand. And then there's Adesanya, where, like, he kind of seemed... Well, a lot of it was redirection feints from Adesanya. It was kind of alarming that Costa just kind of forgot that he had, like, any tools on his right side to kind of try to do anything. And who the fuck knows is what's going on with the Rockhold fight, but... <laughs> that's that's what's weird about Colsta, because, like, he kind of feels like a guy who is trying to become more experienced, but, like, where he's at his best is when he's marching a guy down and throwing as they're throwing, and especially countering them to the body as they step in, um, and just constantly enforcing that pace with the kicking game he has. Um, and so... I never really know what to expect from him, but I think he has some tools here that can work because I don't normally like to use this kind of analysis because it's kind of all over the place, but um, I think Robert Whitaker has kind of been playing with margins since Yoel 2 and Adesanya's first fight because I have seen Whitaker hurt in most of these fights constantly especially on his entry points with blitzes or when he gets backed up consistently and against a guy who can pressure who can potentially back him to the fence and works the body he or like focuses on um trying to counter you at some points when he thinks about it I can see Costa being really scary enough to knock Rob out in this one. So the big question here is, can Robert Whitaker walk that type rope with a jab game here? Um, or into a counter right hand consistently? I'm, I don't know. Maybe a few years ago probably, but I don't know if he has like the durability he used to. So I'm a little torn because like, 
like Costa is that jab magnet, but I can see that a Costa who decides to go full pursuit and destroy can probably get to rob a little bit. So I don't know. It's kind of a case of where Rob is at and where Costa is at. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we've seen Whitaker more often, but we've also seen, like, Whitaker be more, like, vulnerable. Like, like it's not making excuses, but you can tell, like, Costa maybe didn't take the Vettori and the Luke Rockhold fight as seriously. If he shows up for this fight, uh, big if, because I... I'm pretty sure that Costa is not a real fighter and he has never fought before. It's all a, a conspiracy to make us believe that this Costa guy exists. Yeah, kind of, pre- kind of like Rob's last win, which is a loss to a guy named Dorcas Duplicity. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah but this, <laughs> this Costa guy... Um, one thing that also to consider is that before the WC fight, I would not have been scared about the proposition of Costa taking him down. But now I'm kind of seeing it. And Costa, to his credit, a very clean snatch single. Uh, which is like the takedown that Whitaker defends the best, though. But still something to consider there. And another thing is that Costa might not uh, be like a super active jabber. But when he jabs, he has like a very stiff jab. And that's been the thing that it's been getting to Whitaker. Despite him being like such a good jabber, we have to remember that it was Duplessis hurting him with a jab in that fight. And Adesanya uh, constantly like um, frustrating him with the jab out of his face. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, it's it's really concerning for Whitaker because, like, I can see him, like, getting some successes with clinches, but, like, everyone who's, like, experienced, like, being close to Bacosta has kind of realized, oh, this guy's kind of a physical freak. Like, if even Yoel Romero is realizing, oh, I gotta jab this guy up a little bit instead of banging it out with him, and part of that was a gas tank issue, too, who knows? I think that's kind of a testament to kind of how scary Costa is when he hits. Um, so I, I, I don't. I'm not strictly going to pick Costa here as a risk because I don't want to bet against Whitaker here because it may well just be that the jab frustrates Costa all day. But I think like I'm always scared with fights that involve margins of error, and I think Rob's playing with a lot of margins here that he doesn't really have the staying power he used to. Yeah, I mean, it it really depends on how both guys show up to fight night. I mean, you can count that Whitaker is going to, to take it seriously, to train, to show up in shape, but I think... Uh, there's uh, a question mark next to his like current durability that he has been able to mask uh, with his good technique, with his well put together game. But and Costa is not like a knockout artist in the sense that he's not a super accurate puncher, uh, so he doesn't get like that one shot knockout often. 
but maybe it's worse for Whitaker that he's like this like very heavy-handed guy that is piling up damage and doing you on the long term because Whitaker is good at avoiding the big shots and not getting finished uh, save for a save for a few uh, occasions like against Cannoneer against Duplessis but he does get hit and if Costa starts finding the body with the kicks with the hooks to the body against the fence, it can get very ugly for Whitaker. I think still, if if I would have to set up a line, I would say Whitaker is the favorite, but I'm feeling like picking the underdog. I think Costa takes this one. Yeah, I don't feel like we can reliably pick in this one. Um, no, for sure. Until we see it, because of how Costa is and where Whitaker is. Um, it may just well be that, like, Whitaker jabs Costa on and he just kind of goes like, okay, I need to problem solve. Wait a minute. Dot, dot, dot. Um, and, but it might well just be, oh, he bloodies Costa's nose a minute and now Costa's suddenly like, well, time to get in his face. Ace, and we have a completely different fight on our hands to try to figure out. But who kind of knows? But that's kind of the intrigue of this one. Yeah, it's it is very interesting. I just I just hope both guys show up like True. in good form True. and have a good fight. So yeah, I'll I'll take maybe a controversial risk here. I'll take Costa, um, but it, it, I'm not confident. No, yeah, it's it feels like it feels like a risky pick just because you never know with Costa and you know with Whitaker. But, I mean, Whitaker makes sure to have everything he has control of in check. But he does not have control over his current day durability. So, it is a weird one for sure. And with that, we're finally with the big one. For the featherweight championship, we have Alexander the Great Volkanovski against undefeated. El Matador, Ilya Topuria. So what What are your initial reads on this one? Um, I don't even know where to start, to be honest. So this is, yeah, th- this is probably the best fight the UFC can put on right now. And if it isn't, it's top three. Um, so I'll start with Volkanovski. I've written a lot about Volkanovski and like his victories over Max before. But the way you understand Volkanovski is that he's basically MMA's premier all-terrain technician. He specializes at building systems or successes off of another. His main, like, bread and butter is the jab and kicking game. Usually, that's how he controls and mitigates guys by never letting them have the initiative. Well, he always has the initiative. He's truly a death-by-a-thousand-threats kind of guy with probably the most prolific fainting game um, the sport has ever seen and not just prolific just, just constant because he's always switching between things to back up the kind of feints too um he's improved tremendously as um a boxer or and well longer exchanges still aren't his comfort zone um he has one of the best jabs in mma his right his lead um or counter right hand has become particularly notable in that tkz and max hallway fights and even against makachev um, he's a gifted shifter as far as using it offensively and defensively off the hand fighting. 
Um, he's a great transitional fighter, very strong in the clinch, brilliantly difficult to take down, very terrifying top control, extremely good anti-wrestling. But worst of all, he's an extremely good strategist and in a, one of the best in-fight adjusters in the business. Um, excellent conditioning, hits like a truck. He's ice cold under pressure, even when fights get very stressful. Fantastic recovery. Um, he's one of the best MMA fighters we've ever seen. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He's probably the ultimate, um, like mitigator and negator and then some, he's, he's probably the best fighter of this whole generation, if we're being honest, but yeah, he's, he's incredible really. Um, even, even with the loss of Makachev, it's still not, it's still worth arguing that he's still a better fighter than Makachev, but I mean, it's one of those either way kind of things. Um, Teporia. Um, so Teporia has evolved into a talented boxer puncher with a knack for control um, and a preference for coming forward. Incredibly dynamic and fundamentally sound um, with his boxing game, especially as far as like understanding how weight transfers work with his footwork, make him incredibly terrifying for any kind of exchanges. And he's especially dangerous when his counterpunching can occur if he outpositions you. What's even scarier is his feints. He loves to feint with the upper body, especially the shoulders, which you don't see a lot of guys do that, but he also likes to use... Um, I talked about passive pressure fighting earlier. This is what a good passive pressure fighter looks like, where they draw you in with the footwork, the feints, the subtle like throwaways, and then punish your mistakes or pot shot you. He's evolved one of the most deceptively dangerous jabs in the business. Well, he doesn't use the jab like a constant output tool like Volkanovski does. It's that pot-shotting, rhythm-disrupting kind of jab that you'd see from like a prime Robbie Lawler or Jose Aldo. He also loves to punish your footwork, especially behind like planted legs with leg kicks. Um, when he goes to the body, he's dynamic and prolific. Uh, he showed off a talenting, um, as far as like wrestling top game against fellow wrestler Bryce Mitchell, um, and showed some decent like transitions or clinch work off of that. Um, he obviously huge hitter, um, shows very good awareness defensively behind his like fundamental footwork and shoulder rolls. Um, the thing about, um, this fight is it's almost impossible to like really specify the big keys, but I'll touch them. A couple of like good points to start with is um, there's a lot of things about Teporia that will be unproved going into this fight that Volkanovski is the perfect fighter to bring out of him um, just with his inherent mix-up game and uh, well-roundedness. And I think the most prevalent thing is kind of asking about depth because well i've seen Teporia be an excellent cage cutter in some ways i think he's also had the benefit of fighting guys who aren't great at cage cutting or sorry lateral movement or stopping him from doing that um i think as well Teporia has also not dealt with the mix-up threat or transitional threats that volkanovsky is going to bring um 
and in many ways, um, Deporia's lateral movement and neutral game have kind of been slightly untested. Um, though that's kind of a good place to start with, I think. And I mean, there's a lot more to talk about, but I'll pass it over to you. So where do you want to go from here? Um, there's a few things to consider here. I mean, a lot, but let's touch first on initiative is one of an important one. I think, um, we will have an interesting clash. I think it's very probable that Topuria will be the one walking forwards. But even then, I think uh, Volkanovski will work very hard to get a hold of the initiative, even on the back foot, with his constant feigning, with his mix-up, with the throwaway shots. Uh, Topuria more of the kind of throwing everything super hard. Uh, so it will be interesting that dynamic of the guy walking forward against the guy that is sitting back but is trying to control the exchanges. Uh, as you said, Volkanovski probably the best footwork, uh, especially of moving on the outside that Topuria has seen. Uh, Topuria fought a committed outfighter in Salal, but that fight was mostly wrestling for the most part. Antopuria got tired and lost the third round on that one. Um, his fear fight, first fight in the UFC, I think. Um, another thing to consider is that both guys have been vulnerable to to the to the right side being attacked, or as it's commonly known in combat sport, uh, left side attacks. Um, and both guys have a very good left hook. Volkanovski on top of that, a very good like stepping high kick from the left side. And we've seen Topuria like swing with his hands by his waist on the left side. And we saw him getting punished for it in his sole welterweight fight against uh, Jai Herbert. But Volkanovski has also been like, he got kicked in the head in the left side, I think, by Max Holloway as well. So that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, talking about kicking, uh, I think Volkanovski is probably go going to want to have a high output with the kicks in this one, as Topuria has low kicks, uh, can throw the, the odd high kick here and there, but he's mostly concerned about boxing. Volkanovski will play the kickboxer probably in this fight. And, and then you have like the clinching, the wrestling. It will be very interesting to see how they match up physically. I would expect Volkanovski to be to be stronger, by, uh, but Topuria is a tremendous athlete. Uh, both guys, very good wrestlers, very good grapplers. Um, who is going to test Waters first? Um, I think the consequences for Topuria for shooting a takedown uh, he should be more concerned about not ending up on bottom position because Volkanovski is dangerous uh, posturing up into ground and pound and Volkanovski needs to be careful with the front headlock from Topuria that it's very strong um, what else we have the jab as you said Volkanovski a very nuanced jab Topuria more of a, like a battering ram style of jab, but with a very good understanding of rhythm, as you mentioned. So that lead hand, that lead hand battle is very interesting. 
But then both guys, tremendous with the right hand as well. Like Volkanovski, as you mentioned to me before starting the recording, very improved right hand as he showed in the in the third Max Holloway fight and against Korean Zombie. Very sharp right hand. Maybe not packing the power that Topuria does, but accuracy and speed and setups alone are all in, on point. Topuria has a, like a tighter, like more hookier right hand than the than the loopy straight right hand that Volkanovski favors. Um, so yeah, me mechanically they are very mechanically and physically they are very well matched. I think I gotta give an edge on Topuria. Maybe if they get into the pocket, to be like the tighter puncher there, but. Uh, I think Volkanovski stays safer in the pocket. So it's like a double-edged sword for both guys if they go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's a couple of things that I, I want to bring up. I think one um, thing is in regards to um, kind of uh, what I consider the most important facet of this fight by far is footwork. Um and I think this will probably be a serious test for both guys' footwork. I, I said earlier on that um, Volkanovski um, really, really likes to deal with kind of an all-terrain kind of style, meaning you can see him do everything, lateral, pressure, neutral. But if there's one common thing I've seen Volkanovski struggle with, um, he hasn't really fought the kind of fighter who uh, really, really cuts the cage off. Because, well, Max Holloway and Islam Makachev so show some competence there. Makachev kind of will control you a little bit there, but he really won't punish you to the extent once he gets you pressured. And Holloway's more of that swarming kind of avalanche opponent. So that's that's another thing. Uh, th this fight is a good indication of kind of like... There, there are people who will tell you Volkanovski is walking a tightrope in this fight. And that's kind of the difference between this versus, say, Max Holloway. Because it's like, oh, Holloway's very dangerous in the pocket too. Volkanovski showed he could shut that down or at least compete even stop those longer exchanges, right? And that's true. But Holloway was an avalanche that you can delay constantly, like, that builds and builds. Teporia is, like, that really, really terrifying, like, fire that comes out of nowhere that you have to avoid. And so that that's why this is much more of kind of a tightrope thing for Volkanovsky here. Um, so... For cutting the cage, I don't think Teporia has been exceptional at it. Like, he hasn't had guys who've really tested him. I think I've said that already. And Volkanovski will, as far as, like, avoiding staying there. But I would say that um, I have seen Volkanovski backed, even in his best performances, to the fence quite a few times. Enough even by flurries or combinations that 
I have some concern for him against, like, the sort of pressure fighter who really focuses on controlling him there. Is Taporia that guy? Who knows? But that would be the first thing. The second thing that Volkanovski has consistently had some vulnerability to is counterpunches. Um, the most obvious is the second Holloway fight where he blitzes in um, and runs into some counters. Makachev as well. Because while well, Makachev's was reinforced by his clinch ability, Makachev realized, oh, okay, when you come in, I have to focus on countering you consistently. Um, but if you're having Volkanovski, like, in the pocket, too, guys who have had success with him have kind of hooked with him. Even though Brian Ortega wasn't able to establish momentum because Ortega's kind of an opportunist sort of fighter who's not good at, like crafting his moments unless he has that eureka moment he did find consistent success like countering volkanovsky just with a counter check hook or stepping in and stunning volk for a second with that um so i think a fighter who can really really punish volk with the counter punches is the kind of guy who can bait out a response from volkanovsky and then step back in and punish him and that's something Taporia, I think, really, really can threaten Volkanovski here with if he's able to establish it. Having said that, um, w- with Taporia's dynamism in the pocket, there's other things that are untested for him. Um, well, he's shown to be a decent anti-wrestler. Uh, Mitchell had some successes, like drawing some of his reactions out to get to the body locks. And Taporia um, himself, especially at first in fights, is very um, hair-trigger as far as, like, committing to some defensive options with linear kind of V-steps um, off of an opponent's feints. I, I do have concerns for that against the most prolific fainter in MMA, but also a guy who can recognize, oh, this guy's a pocket threat. I can create a clinch tie-up off of that. Um... And I would not be surprised to see Volkanovski go into that well for his wrestling game often in this fight. Um, and that's definitely kind of an asterisk as far as how does Taporia handle that. Um, there's there's a couple of other things that, um, that, that I think are worth talking about here. Um, Taporia's kicking game um, hasn't... I think is actually an interesting thing because he really, really likes to punish um, um, people's footwork with it. And I don't think many people have often tried punishing Volkanovsky with kicks often. Last I checked, um, that is, that's a source of intrigue here. I would also say that um, Volkanovsky um, is constant with using his kicks to disrupt other people's punches. So it's going to be a serious test of him if he can do that against Taporia's jab, which tends to be really difficult to read when it's coming out. But because Taporia is so uh, front foot heavy, as Fenio pointed out to me before recording, I think that's one opening for him. I, I think, um, I, I think that about covers most of like the little weaknesses or intricacies as far as stuff. But like. I really think footwork's the big thing. I think initiative is another thing. I think spatial management is another. Um, but yeah, th- this is very much like an objectives kind of fight that involves margins. 
but unlike where I, I talked about a fight with margins earlier where it sort of felt like the margins favored one guy a lot more. Here I see one guy working with margins, Volkanovsky, who has a lot of answers to deal with them, just with sheer, like, depth. So it's, it's a serious question of, like, what's going to happen in this fight? And nobody kind of knows because we're dealing with unknown questions with Teporia, but also, like, there's unique tests here that Volkanovski actually hasn't faced yet or has the potential to face. Yeah, Bokuri, uh, Topuria, excuse me, for sure brings a lot of interesting questions. As you said, Topuria, not great at getting people against the fence, but probably the most dangerous once you are against the fence. He will put the combinations together, he will go to the body, he will attack multiple multiple faces, he will double up the sides, he has a tight left hook, a big overhand, and... And yeah, it's interesting to see. Uh, oh yeah, and uh, when talking about Volkanovski's vulnerability, I talk about Max Holloway kicking him. <laughs> but obviously, Isa Makhachev uh, put him out with the with the left high kick. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think Topuria needs to make the most out of any opportunity that he gets with Volkanovski against the fence. I feel like if Volkanovski can keep it on the center of the cage, he can make Topuria miss a lot. Uh, especially if he starts drawing the counters uh, and, and using the footwork, as you said, stepping in and out. As he he baited like uh, Jair Rodriguez so many times in their fight, making him just swing at air. Uh, Volkanovski's durability... Is a bit of a question mark, but it's nothing like Robert Whittaker. Uh, the only thing that concerns me is that it's not been that long since he got finished by Mahachev. Yeah, I think many people are pointing to age as a factor here, and fine. But for all accounts, Volkanovski is still looked like Volkanovski, so I I get it. But let's let's still assume we're dealing with still by all accounts one of the best fighters in the world here. Now, is that to say though that? You can't see Teporia hurting him. Yes, because I've seen Volkanovski hurt a lot in many of his fights. His recovery is excellent, but his chin has never been, like, untouchable. No, for sure. Even in his best performances, there are moments where he kind of has an on switch where he's like, oh, okay, I need to be concerned here. And even against, like, Yair Rodriguez, Rodriguez had some points in that third round where even though, like, Rodriguez is super fucking fast, like, Rodriguez starts mixing up little tricks off his kicks and punches, and there's a moment where, like, Volkanovski is like, oh, okay, you're dangerous. I need to turn the switch and pressure you now. And even then, like, Yair was still getting some work done until he ran into the shifting counter that finished him, which brings to a good segue. Um, Shifting in this fight for Volk, I think you'll see a lot of switches from Volk because it's just part of his game. And I think, like, him enforcing feints here, that's another big thing in this fight. Uh, feints are going to be a big deal for both guys. Um, you'll definitely see them out of Volk because he throws so many out there, but Teporia is more that subtle, subdued one. Um, and so it's really going to be a test of whose feints, like, can control stuff, especially the distance off of it. Um, I... 
I think shifting, I think Volkanovsky has to really be careful here. If it's being used into a tie-up, I can see it working. But if it's like into punches that risk the pocket, it's definitely something he's going to have to mind his P's and Q's with. Yeah, I think that's one is a dangerous proposition. Um, yeah, as you said, if he's trying to like grab a body lock of a shift, I think that's fine. If he's trying to do like the, like for example, against uh, Mahachev, he would do the like st uh, starting southpaw shift uh, with the rear left hand into the orthodox left hook. I think those kind of combinations are kind of scary against Topuria, personally. Uh, unless he has him like super biting on feints, and that's a possibility, but I think he should wait until he has the reaction that he wants. Yeah, Topuria, uh, Topuria has like two moments where that's definitely going to be a good opportunity. The first is, yeah, reacting to feints, and the second is... Taporia, well, we did say when he goes to the body, he's prolific. Taporia still has that, I'm going to throw 100% heaters at your head and knock your block off with it kind of mentality sometimes. And it means he leads with his upper body and his feet just kind of stay elsewhere. Yeah. So that's that's one reason why he gets hit with the left hook counter often. Um, and low-key why he's probably open to the right-handed counter too. But... He doesn't always do that. And I think, like, for Teporia, it would be a good idea to bring the body shots back into this fight big time. Yeah, the thing is that Topuria is mostly a body puncher against defense, not so much in open space. Um, also, uh, leg kicks, which uh, you already mentioned a little bit, but it's interesting. Obviously, we, we will expect a lot of inside leg kicks, from the left side by Volkanovski. And uh, Topuri, I think he will try to like neutralize some of that lead, lead side activity from Volkanovski with his outside leg kicks. But it will be interesting to see if Volkanovski uh, brings his own leg kicks to to fight the, the lead leg of Topuri that is very heavy. And also how much Topuri is going to kick because I think... Um, he shouldn't like transform his game, but it would be well advised to kick a little bit more in this one to not concede that range. Because Volkanovski with the in and out movement, especially when he plays his stance and start getting going with the with the inside leg kick, he can fight a lot longer than a, a man of his stature would make you believe. And Topuria really needs that, like, close distance to land his best shots. Yeah, you can't just kick Volk for free earlier easy because he'll lock you into a counter off of that, like what happened to Yair. But if you do it with kind of the setups, and I think, like, that's where punching footwork is going to be a big deal because I have seen him use it, Topuria, to punish footwork a bit with the kicks. So if that's what he's targeting, I think that would be a good idea. But like, as far as like the constant stream of kicks coming out, um, yeah, I think we would expect Volk for that. But if Tapuria is able to back him up, pull pull kind of what Max Holloway did in that rematch, and maybe a little bit in the third too, where it's like, okay, I'm gonna kick whenever I get you to reset your feet, eat and force you to reset again off of that. I think that would be the thing that at least lets him kick with Volkanovski quite a bit. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's the thing about this fight is everything cohesives itself into one another for both guys. Um, like you, initiative is so important in this fight. Like it's not even funny. Yeah, it is. It is going to be all, and I, and I'm pretty sure it's going to end up in the end uh, about who reacts to what. Uh, is it going to be Volkanovski reacting to Topuria, trying to put him against the fence, or is it going to be Topuria like binding on the fence and swinging at air? I think uh, it comes to that at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like. If you're looking at this fight, like th- there's a couple of things that'll come down to, and we've emphasized them. But I think if you were to narrow them, it's footwork, it's feints, it's spatial management, um, and it's margins. Margins in this case specifically refers to the pocket. Um, straight up, um, both guys will have answers there, but one guy is prolifically way more dangerous as an equalizer. But the other still has answers to get in and out of it if need be. Um, so, I, I guess... Um, I don't really have many other things to say about this fight because we're still dealing with kind of a lot of unknowns. But it's just... It's fascinating to think about, though. As far as, like, the level of how good both these guys are. Um, I don't think... I expect Volkanovski to really be at the absolute top for too much longer despite arguing against the age reservation thing earlier. And Teporia, by all hands and accounts, still is going to give every featherweight on the planet a hard fight, regardless of how this one goes, for my money. Um, So I I don't really have much else to say in the way of it, if you want to jump to the predictions. I'm... I'm... Even... Even with all the, like, tape-watching... All we talk about here, I'm still not very sure about that prediction. I, I, I'm not either. But here, here's what I'll say. I think, since we're dealing with unknowns here, and I think we're also dealing with like proven depth and questions. Um, we we've seen Volkanovski constantly um, be able to handle fights where margins matter. This is probably the tightest they'll probably be for him yet. Um, But I think he has a lot of the grit and experience that it's kind of hard to pick against him. So I'll pick him by decision. Um, I think if he's able to weaponize everything he can, his initiative, his feints, his transitions into tie-ups, and low-key his weaponized pace, I think he can get this done but I would expect there to be at least one really, really scary moment in this fight. At least one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... And and it all depends. Uh, I think, yeah, uh, it's very probable that we see one scary moment. And what happens from there is the big question for me. Uh, Topuria, I think, could not finish Emmet, but what he did every time he heard him was very promising moving forwards. It was like very solid follow-ups. He did not gas himself. He stayed composed. Obviously, it's not the same when it is the fight of your life for the title, you know? Yeah. I, I'm i I'm very, very nervous for Volkanovski as far as like playing with the margins and Temporius shot selection in the pocket. 
until he goes wild is very, very concerning, um, especially when his initial shot selections. I think the pot shot jab is a really scary thing for Volkir, but yeah, I I think Volkanovski is the safe pick, but don't don't let Volkanovski's like status or even the aftermath if he wins this decisively fool you for how dangerous this fight is because it really is that scary. Yeah, I think I think logical pick. You gotta still go with Volkanovski. Just because he's the more proven product against a large, a larger variety of matchups, I think Topuria is well equipped to deal with a lot of what Volkanovski brings to the table, even more so than some previous fighters. I think if I have to make a pick, like going by just a hunch and not like actual <laughs> analysis. I feel like Volkanovski will be winning this fight until he's not winning anymore because something happened. And Topuria, I think, is... He will be able to make the most out of hurting Volkanovski, I think. It's it's very much a fight um, where you have a guy who needs to play every single one of his cards right or nearly all of them right versus a guy where if he plays one very certain card right it crumbles the whole deck and um it's i don't want to call Taporia the guy who exploit every opportunity he gets because i don't really know that no if no for if sure he, not if he was that guy to be completely honest though i would probably pick him but i don't think he's that guy um Having said that, um, yeah, I, I, I would pick Volkanovski by decision, but I think it'll be close, and I think there's going to be at least one scare. At least one, maybe two. Yeah, I think I think it's very probable that Topuria starts taking over if he hurts Volkanovski, but and maybe takes like over for a round or two. But finally, I think I'm regretting what I just said. And I'm also picking Volkanovski by decision. Let's make it interesting. Both making the, the same pick. It, it, puts, it puts us on the, on the fire, you know? Because we, 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 won't have, we won't have the skills of my co-host made the right choice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, okay, yeah, well, I, I think we're running... Yeah, that covers it. We've been running long, but I hope... I think it's justified just because it's such a great fight. And the rest of the pay-per-view is fun, too. So mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say every single one of these is must-see in some way, but especially, like, the last few. Yeah, um, so recap. Uh, Andrea Lee versus Maverick is a well-matched fight at 125. Uh, do not have, like, super high expectations for the winner, but they are... Solid fighters and solid additions to the weight class. So, and it's probably going to be action-packed. Uh, but Woodburn versus Ovan Elliott, uh, it's a bit of a meme fight, to be honest. But uh, this one has a small chance of being kind of boring, maybe. But, but there's also a high chance of 